our political faith of liberalism is one of utter integrity and honesty and of imagination. As liberals, be proud of those policies and be proud of what they have done for Australia. Welcome to the Water Cooler Podcast. I'm Nick Cater, Senior Fellow at the Menzies Research Centre, and with me is my colleague, Freya Leach. Welcome back, Freya. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Nick. In this series of podcasts, we're attempting to do something big to define the virtues that unite Australian liberals in the 21st century. Our starting point is the We Believe Statement, which was issued to mark the 10th anniversary of the Liberal Party in 1954. Each episode examines one of the 17 We Believe statements to discover the abiding liberal principles that they contain and discuss how they apply to the challenges of our time. So joining me today is, or joining us today, of course, is Keith Woolahan, who entered federal parliament last May as the member for the Victorian seat of Menzies, no more appropriately named seat, I think, for this programme. Welcome to you both. So today we are looking at the statement that we believe in Australia, her courage, her capacity, her future and her national sovereignty exercised through parliaments, deriving their authority from the people by free and open elections. And no one is more fitting to speak about this than Keith Wallahan, who I believe has a background in defence. So, Keith, tell us your thoughts, your initial thoughts on this statement. No, thank you for having me, Nick and Freya. It's, it's lovely to join you. When you look at these 17 items, I think this is probably one of the most important ones because it's given not long after World War II and, in fact, it's in the shadow of the Korean War. I think the Prime Minister, I think Robert Menzies, has a clear focus on our national sovereignty and security, but he anchors that in our democracy because democracy is a form of government. It is not a given at the time, and you have to fight for it, and that's what he's getting at. I, I think out of the 17, Keith, this is one we... It strikes me as one we're not going to have too much trouble with, but we'll find out as we go along. But... Yeah, it, it, broadly speaking, I think it, it's the kind of statement that would resonate today. We might change one or two words, perhaps to make it a little bit more friendly for our era. But the sentiment that we believe in Australia, that's true. We all believe in Australia, don't we? And we believe in her sovereignty. I think we do. I'd be interested to get Keith's thoughts on this. Obviously, as a young person, I think that sometimes young people have a bit more of a sense of ambivalence about the concept of Australia, perhaps because of what they're taught about our history and about some of the conflict that they are taught sort of resulted in the creation of Australia. So I think we broadly would agree with this statement, but I do think some young people in particular might feel a bit uncomfortable about so clearly calling themselves essentially patriots, like we believe in Australia. Keith, just in, you're in Parliament now. We're recording this on a parliamentary sitting day. You may have mm. missed it in the Senate, but Senator Lydia Thorpe, the former Greens senator, got up and started repeating things she'd said before about, about Aboriginal sovereignty. The, the black sovereign movement is a voice you'll never allow to the table. And she repeated her, what she said often before, that, that Aboriginals have never ceded sovereignty and that the Constitution is an illegal document and that we need to have separate sovereignty for Aboriginal people. That's a problematic statement for me, Keith. What do you think? I agree. And I think Senator Thorpe, It's there's some sense of irony that there she is standing in our parliament, in the Senate. And that didn't happen by accident. And she's able to speak with all of the authority that comes with that and the legitimacy that comes with that because of our democracy that can only work in the way that it does because of the rules and the boundaries from our constitution. Where we are and where I am in Canberra is the heart of our democracy. But up up the road, there's a memorial that we often forget about having a link to this place, and that's the War Memorial with 103,000 names on it. And no no reasonable person can pretend every nation's history is perfect. It's not. Ours is not. And we can acknowledge our ancient Indigenous history and the injustices that occurred. But we must also remind ourselves that Australia as a nation was one of the earliest movers in the age of democracies, one of the earliest. So that makes it one of the oldest democracies on earth. And I'm first to say that it's one of the most successful, very proud of how our democracy works. 
And there's a reason that it's one of the top destinations for migrants around the world. And the idea of Australia, it's not a it's not a concept that just belongs in books. It's what binds us all together as individuals and groups, but it's the thing that we all share in common. And that's a beautiful thing that people have lost their lives defending. And, uh, and I don't think we should dismiss that lightly as saying what Senator Thorpe saying was just hubris. It's actually quite dangerous to question our democracy and sovereignty, even though she has a right to do that. Freya, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this, because it seems to me that we've, this word sovereignty is thrown around rather too lightly now. Mm. We talk about the new governor of Victoria has said that Aboriginals have never ceded sovereignty. But surely we cannot, if we're going to say that there is going to be a separate sovereign nation within this continent, a place that's been Australian sovereign territory since the, since the settlement, I guess, European settlement, you're throwing up something quite dangerous, aren't you? Do you, do you sense that? And do you think the people that, of your age group are aware of the dangers of that? I think everyone senses that it's a very common thing to do. And even the acknowledgement of country on Instagram, people my age will have in their bios saying on stolen land, never ceded, and then the Aboriginal name of wherever they live. And that's acknowledging, it's as Keith said, acknowledging that history is not a bad thing in and of itself. But I don't think young people have really thought through the implications and what it actually means to say that there still is a separate sovereign nation in Australia that is defined along racial lines. And I'm not quite sure what the long-term implications of this sort of thinking is. And forgive me if I'm wrong, but this seems to be a newer thing. I don't know if this is this it seems to be taking off and much more common than it ever was before to see Australia divided into two sovereign nations one being the Australia that we're all a part of and the other one being the Australia that is just limited to Aboriginal people. Keith any thoughts on that? Yeah it is something that's more common and it is more common with younger people and I think probably most probably mean well when they speak in those terms but it really is it really is quite insidious because again historically like when this statement was made in 1954 democracies were not a given and you can argue that in the early 2000s or the late 90s that was the peak of democracies and they're fighting for their very existence again and we're seeing that around the world and for people to show the bravery and courage that we're seeing in places like Ukraine they have to have a sense of belief that they're fighting for something and if we don't have something to fight for, then people won't. And then something will replace what you have. And it certainly won't be a legitimate democracy that we can all take for granted now. This is a precious thing that we have. And the idea of Australia as a unifying idea that doesn't distinguish between anyone, once you're a citizen, either born here or you've gone through the ceremony, you have enormous rights and obligations, but you're part of the team in an equal way. That's a cherished thing that, that we should stand up for, because if we're not going to fight for that, we're probably not going to fight for anything. Because we're not a, we're not a, the idea that this is somehow white or British or European nation that we've established here, it's not, is it? This is Australia. It's not a country for white people or black people. It's a place for everybody who has Australian citizenship, who has the great honour of being a citizen of this country. So there's no reason why we can't just say it's our country and we share it together. The idea that there should be a separate country and where the border's going to be for a start, <laughs> we saw where that led during COVID. <laughs> yeah. Freya? I think that's exactly right. Keith, I'd be interested to hear, as a young person talking to my friends and trying to talk a bit of sense into them, what would you say to young people who don't feel almost like they should celebrate Australia and they feel almost a bit embarrassed about being proud to be Australian? What would you say to people who feel a bit like that? Yeah, it's people need to want to feel it. So I would encourage them to look around the world as to where else would they rather live? How other democracies and other nations fare with their history? And I think if anyone becomes a student of global politics and a student of history, you'll realise that there isn't a nation on earth that doesn't have histories that it's not proud of or things that it could do better. But when it comes to having a legitimate democracy, 
that respects fundamental freedoms. Again, it's not perfect, and we're certainly not perfect. It's, you have to compare it with other nations and other nations in their history. And there is a reason migrants want to come here more than any other place on earth, more than any other place on earth, because they have done that calculation. Because they're not comparing Australia with a fictitious Australia, they're comparing Australia with what else is on offer in the world. And this is right up there. And, and, and we know that because of the choice that migrants are making. I wasn't born here and my family picked Australia out of all the others. This was the best place on earth you could come. And then when I go to citizenship ceremonies as a member of parliament, again, I just see that look of pride on people's faces as they become Australian citizens and wave the flag and stand for the national anthem because they know they worked so hard to get here and it was worth fighting for just to get through the front door. I wonder if migrants are less confused about this point than others. And I, sp- I say that as a migrant, Keith. It's not a hard concept for me. I, I went to the trouble, and it was a lot of trouble. It wasn't cheap. I was far too late for the £10 POM scheme. I brought a family over here, and it's difficult. Yep. But I did it because it was a deliberate, conscious decision. I thought this was a better country, and it was a place that I wanted to be and, to, and for my children to have all the benefits of being in this country. And 30 years or more here, and I've not been disappointed so it's easy for me and I, as you say I see it at those those wonderful citizenship ceremonies on Australia Day and other times during the year people raise mm. their right hand to show allegiance to the country as citizens and the brilliant thing they share equal they have they may be only been five minutes since they signed their certificate but they have exactly the same rights and responsibilities as you and I and anybody. That's mm. the wonderful thing. It's a great equaliser, isn't it? And in those ceremonies, not only are they happy to be there, they're just showing tears of joy. Yeah, just that, that they are so happy that they're actually... I, there's a cere- Very rarely a ceremony goes by where I don't see people crying with happiness. It is... They know where they've come from and they know what it means to be here. And I think you're right. I think migrants ha- have a special sense of what it is that we have and how special it is. Yeah, that's so true. My dad's also a migrant from South Africa and his mum actually fled Nazi Germany in 1939. And so for me, I've always grown up with this great sense of gratitude, understanding I still have cousins in South Africa that have a fraction of the opportunities that we are so blessed with here. And sometimes it's just very frustrating when people don't have that perspective. And so part of the thing that we want to do here at Menzies as well is to try and remind people of just how lucky they are to live in our awesome country. Just diving into the statement specifically, it might be helpful if we dissect it phrase by phrase. So the first part is we believe in Australia. What do you think that actually means to believe in Australia? Is it like the people, what we do as a country? What is this sort of concept of Australia? I think even in 1954, there would have been uh, people around who had a memory of pre-federation. They would have been quite young. So the idea of Australia as a nation post-Federation was still they remember when it didn't exist. Now, there's no one alive now who who has that memory, but there would have been quite a few. And so to acknowledge that Australia as an idea is a thing is, I think, is a nod to that, that they were within one generation of its very existence as, as the Commonwealth. And, and I think that's why he led with that. But I think you also have to anchor this statement in what came before and what comes after, being Menzies starts with the crown, then Australia, then the individual. I think he was showing a hierarchy of what was important to him in that order, from the crown to the nation to the individual. So its context and its place is important too. Nick, do you have any thoughts? I, th- I think it's, it's an interesting thing, Keith, Freya, this is the only only place where you come close to having one entire continent that is a sovereign state at the same time. New Zealand, they turned their noses up. They didn't want to be part of federation, fair enough. But, I mean, the, in a way, we consider them the next best thing to being Australian. That's a unique thing. But I, that said, I don't think when we talk about Australia that we generally are thinking about a geographical territory are we it's not like we're say the macedonians we're proudly defending a land which goes back thousands of years to our ancestors we are defending it we are talking about it seems to be an idea the idea of being australian the ideas that we share the ideas of freedom 
the responsibilities that we all instinctively feel to one another most of the time to help somebody who's down on their luck to treat our neighbours as our as our friends that is it seems to me that it's the idea that holds us together rather than some deep ancestral ties and that's because we I guess we don't have too many shared Australian Australians mm. don't have too many shared ancestral bonds do we because we come from all corners of the world yeah can, can you have that can you have a nation bound by an idea I think you can and I think the idea of democracy to go back to it is still not a given and it was tested in the most serious way during World War Two, and then had tested in another way in the Korean War that the Cold War had just gone hot. So I think Menzies in his mind saw this great battle of ideas between communism or totalitarian communism and liberal democracies. And he saw Australia being on the front line of leading by example, showing that this is a way for a group of people to live in a legitimate way and stand up for that. So I think it's in the context of those great ideological battles of the Cold War, which had just started. And there's also, I think, probably a sense that Australia is greater than the sum of her parts. It's not just a group of individuals that happen to be living in a single place at a, at a certain point in history. There's actually this sort of immaterial thing that binds those people together. And it's those values that, that you guys have talked about. I just wonder, I saw some statistic about this a few weeks ago, the declining levels of patriotism in Australia, especially since the 1990s, they've just dropped off a cliff. And what do you think that will do to this belief in Australia? Will, will we have a lesser form of belief? I don't I know. I think we've got to be patriotic, haven't we? Some people see that as a bit of a problematic concept, patriotism, because it throws up ideas of jingoism and a sort of aggressiveness towards other nations. I don't see it as that. I just see it simply as being proud of the country and thinking that what we have here is worth defending, that it's worth defending our sovereignty against, say, invasion by another country because what we have here is better. It's a really valuable thing and we should look after it, which means, I think, and this is what I wanted to ask you both, we have to think this is a better country, don't we? We have to think that we live in the best country in the world because if not why why are we why aren't we living somewhere else is that important keith do we have to be proud of the country it is but i think that the tension there is i my my guess is that young people want to also consider themselves compassionate global citizens and that's often reflected in views on say climate change but also c- compassion for others who might live somewhere else in the world and also just a desire for world peace and less war. So I think you can view our system of government as being better than all others and an avenue for legitimacy, for peace and for prosperity and be proud of that. Whereas I think young people who think we're there's some sort of table-thumping patriotism that views others in a negative way, I don't think that's attractive to young people. So the idea of our system being one we're proud of is probably something that is more appealing than the the traditional views of patriotism. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. I definitely agree. And I notice the language that some people use. And you're exactly right picking up on, on issues like climate change. There is this sense of a global duty. And we've seen the rise of these sorts of global governance frameworks. We've got the UN, we've got Universal Declaration on Human Rights. There's very much a sense that we live within this sort of international order. And I think young people probably feel that more strongly and that we're actually citizens of the world as well as citizens of Australia. I know Nick finds this incredibly problematic and I would agree. Nick, what do you think about that? I do. I've always been uncomfortable with that idea, citizens of the world. You are a citizen of a country to which you have a duty, mm. you have obligations. And I feel this very strongly, in fact, and a lot of people thought I was bonkers to do this, but I, after 30 years in this country, I actually did renounced my British citizenship I just thought you can only really be citizen of one country and that would have been convenient to hang on to my British passport I don't know why I have no intention of going back to the, to live there it's a nice 
beautiful country to visit, of course, and I have family. But I just feel you have to say, this is my country. This is the country to which I'm committed. It is a country which has given me so many blessings. It gives me so much that I can appreciate and I have to give back. And and that means very basic levels, turning up for jury duty when I'm asked or whatever. Those And voting, of course, in this country is one of the duties we have as citizens. Am I pushing this too hard? Does anybody think I was nuts to give up my British citizenship? (laughs) Can we have a looser idea of citizenship than that? I had to as well for obvious reasons, Nick. (laughs) So I had to give up my Irish citizenship. (laughs) But I do think we'll come back to this, I'm sure, in future episodes of this. There there is one thing missing from Menzies' we believe statement for me, and that is any mention of the word citizenship. Mm. It's become more... Perhaps it was just Mm. obvious back then when you had a more homogenized society that this idea of citizenship was just taken for granted but now we can see it's under threat here and in the states and elsewhere from the idea of the whole identity politics movement that you're not your identity is something other than the fact that you're australian whereas i i very much believe we have to say we are australians first and foremost we can be something else under that i can be a english-born with Scottish heritage or Keith can be wherever you were born Keith but you don't you the the number one thing is we're Australian and that's the to me the binding Mm. glue it is can I give you an anecdote that sort of explained that recently I was at a school that was being opened and there was a smoking ceremony by a a traditional elder and he, he did a really good job and he made the point that his ancestry was one quarter indigenous and he said I'd like to show you a picture of my family in traditional dress. This was near the end of the ceremony. And he turned the photo around and there was a large family photo of people in Scottish kilts and everyone laughed. And he said, that's because I'm, in addition to being 25% Indigenous ancestry, I'm 25% Scottish ancestry, I'm 10% Italian, 10% Irish, 10% Scandinavian. And he said, you know what I am? I'm 100% Australian. And and that's how he finished. And I just thought it was a really lovely way to acknowledge that being Australian is the glue that binds all of us together. And it was a really well done ceremony. That's, oh, that's such a beautiful story. But do you think at the moment that with things like the voice to parliament, uh, that sort of sense that actually we might have different identities, different experiences, but ultimately what is truly defining about us and what is uniting is that we're all Australian. Do you think The Voice challenges that in any way? I was very struck when we had a gala dinner to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Neville Bonner's entry to Parliament as the first Indigenous Member of Parliament, although it was actually the 51st thanks to COVID. I was very struck by what he said in that he said, look, I am I'm Aboriginal, I have my original heritage, he's also a Christian, he was very proud of being a Christian, he was a member of a, he came from his local community, he was, and he was a member of parliament, but, or a senator, but he said, he was very clear, but above all, he said, I'm Australian, and that brings me back to that concept, that if we can agree that we'll put that above everything else, whatever else we are, then I think we end up with a much stronger, more civilised society. I agree. And there goes the the Senate bells in the background. So my apologies to your listeners. I was at that dinner too, Nick. I thought it was really well done. And I was envious of those who got to meet him. I I missed out getting to meet him. It just seemed like a wonderful person, a wonderful Australian. And I absolutely agree. I think that is one of the risks, in addition to constitutional risk that's present in the wording, is that it just risks making us divided and being seen as something other than Australians. And, and I think that's, that sentiment is one we should avoid. We should be unifying us as what we have in common, not what's different. And, and I'm worried about that in this process. At the Menzies Research Centre, we're passionate believers in the power of ideas to change conversations and shape the future. Thanks to podcasts, we've extended our circle of conversations to thousands of people every month. Podcasts are a great medium for think tanks. Listeners turn into podcasts for longer, more sophisticated conversations than they can find on conventional media, and we're very happy to provide them. And thanks to the generosity of our supporters, we can deliver them for free. 
You can show your support by subscribing to the Menzies Research Centre from just $10 a month. Go to menziesrc.org slash subscribe or click on the link in the podcast notes. Freya, just going through the, the statement, the We Believe statement says, we believe in Australia's courage. I sense that's going to sound a strange virtue to attribute to a country to people of your generation is it and then we'll throw to Keith because I'm sure he'll have something to say about this Uh, it it is and it isn't I think people can people that's a it's a cool thing and it's quite inspiring really to to think that actually our country has courage and we can achieve as a nation but I do think it's probably not really the language in which a lot of younger people think perhaps it's because lots of people haven't ever confronted a war haven't had to fight for the rights that we enjoy and there isn't that sense that courage has been required to survive as a nation what do you think Keith? Yeah, I was reflecting on that. I think it it again reflects the time in which he gave this statement, one year after the end of the Korean War and within a decade of the end of World War II. So through three wars, World War I, World War II and the Korean War, Menzies was aware of vulnerabilities and the fact that we may not always be able to call on powerful friends. And like the people of Ukraine are showing today, I think even then he knew that our future ultimately lies in the courage of our people. And this again, was also a time when the sanctity of national sovereignty as a norm was not a given. But he recognised that if your people show courage, you will be a more safe and secure nation. He may have also meant by courage, confidence or optimism. And maybe the confidence and optimism are words that might have more relevance to young people today. I like that. Let's put Mm. those words in. To me, I, I think yeah, of course, there's the courage when we face an external threat. But I think there's also a sense in which Australia, the history of Australia, and I'm not just talking about the settled history, a European settlement I'm talking about before that, is a history of courageous people who take on the challenge of somehow surviving on what can be a very difficult and unforgiving continent. It's not a continent that sort of gives up its riches easily. And it seems to me that the thing that... The binding virtue that brings both Aboriginal and Indigenous people together with people who settled afterwards is everyone in their own way had to show a degree of courage and ingenuity and just doggedness to survive on this planet. Mm. It seems to me that's a... Mm a unifying statement. But part of the challenge that we have now is that there are so many people that have never had to encounter the struggle for existence and so they don't they've never been forced to be courageous. What do you think about that Keith? I think that's true but then again to come back to Ukraine people who were one week teaching in schools making coffees in their own cafe doing a startup being at university where in a few weeks of fighting for their lives in anti-tank teams, digging trenches that we haven't seen in Europe since World War I. And they've shown that courage and resilience ever since. I have great optimism for young people to step up when required. And I remember when I was on my second tour in Afghanistan and I was looking around and most of my platoon were in primary school when September 11 happened. But here they were risking their lives and showing great bravery and courage and I I think we we will always have that capacity it's not a given but I'm generally optimistic. Freya we said at the start of this series that we thought we might have some issues with some of the gendered language in in some of these statements which we wouldn't talk about it quite in those terms today. In, In this one we talk about Australia her courage her capacity her future and her national sovereignty I get the the literary quality to Mm. that, but do you think we need to have a look at that if we were going to rephrase it today in order that it's just doesn't it's less confronting to people or is it okay can we get away with it I think it depends who you're talking to obviously I'm not phased by that and I think I'm thankful that I've had a good English education so I understand how literature works but I do think perhaps if you look if you really wanted to change it you could rephrase it to something you could use inclusive language, and I don't mean gender inclusive, but using 
a word like our, like we believe in our Australia, in our courage, in our capacity. Mm. That could be one way you could get around that. Yeah, but it, again, it depends. you'll always find someone to take issue with that. I don't. And I don't know if we should change it <laughs> just because people might. What do you think, Keith? I agree with you. I'm, I think there's a tradition to this and it's also in the way ships are named as well. It's meant with affection and warmth and a really signifying that it's home we, we signify the feminine being, being home but I also like the way your suggestion for our I actually think that's an improvement because it's not talking about Australia standing outside it's talking about it as inclusive like the person saying the statement is like our I have to show courage the person who's saying this out loud I'm not just relying on other people or this abstract thing so I think your amendment is a good one Let's go around the pronoun issue. It's always a tricky one these days. What was Menzies trying? What was Menzies getting at when he when he spoke about Australia's capacity? How do we understand that? Right. I think with Keith's experience in the defence forces, he's probably more able to talk about like a military capacity, but. I don't know what Menzies was really referring to. I guess it's written in the context of the Second World War. And so perhaps it would be our capacity to remain a sovereign country and continue to stand up for the values that have defined us. I also took it to be that it's about opportunity and resilience, that we may not be, we will never be the largest nation in a region or certainly not in the world, but we can punch above our weight, to, to use that cliche, but c- capacity is about optimism and opportunity. And the fact that he then goes straight into the next part being about talking about the future, I think it's also talking about us recognising that we're all custodians for future generations. And there's things that we are doing today that should have one eye on our children and our grandchildren for whether we're proud of the decisions that we make. I like that word capacity and I think about people talk about Australia being the lucky country we're blessed with all these wonderful resources as we are but really our greatest resource and our greatest renewable resource if you like is human is a human spirit it's enterprise ingenuity and energy that that drives us forward and without that you could have the most abundant riches in the world but nothing would happen to them and we know plenty of countries in the world in Africa, for instance, parts of Africa where that has happened, where they haven't been able to develop their resources because of civic issues. We've been able to do that here, and I was struck by that on a recent tour to far north Queensland, to Bowen, and I visited a farm where they get eight hundred, seven or 800,000 cases of tomatoes shipped to Coles every year, and you go... any idea how complicated it is Mm. to grow that many tomatoes pick them pack them into boxes and then truck them down the Bruce Highway the worst highway in the world and get them into the stores it's an act of sheer brilliance and it wouldn't happen without people just determined to crash through every problem and find a solution and you see this everywhere don't you Keith as soon as you get out of Parliament House and out of the scene of the city, Australians behaving like that. Exactly. And again, it's, it goes to one of the other, we believe, statements being about free enterprise, but uh, th- that all works and it works like magic. But imagine we had a department for tomatoes trying to do all that for the country. <laughs> it, you, you just know it, it would break down and it wouldn't work. Yeah, the capacity of Australians separate to their government to show ingenuity and to solve problems. And being guided by self-interest in a commercial sense. That's us at our best. So maybe where Menzies, or in that statement we talk about the capacity of Australia, maybe we should talk about the capacity of Australians because they're the ones who actually get things done. That'd be a good amendment. Mm, And also quite countercultural today. But young people, I'm sorry to keep talking about young people forever, but it seems to me they haven't lost any of that entrepreneurial spirit, have they? They're all... So many young people with great ideas want to set up startups and great ideas for new software or different things mm. they can do. We just need to nurture and encourage that, don't we? I don't think we have to instill it in people because it seems to me it's always there. Look, I think that's right 
to an extent. I think there is definitely an entrepreneurial spirit among young people. And thanks to technology and the internet, never before have you been able to create such incredible businesses and ideas and products out of so few resources, really. But I do think that a lot of young people are not actually convinced that we or even themselves really do have capacity and implicit in the word capacity is a sense that you can be self-determining and work hard and achieve and I think a lot of young people don't believe they have that level of free will there is this constant narrative that young people are victims and that you can work hard but really if you're born into a certain family in a certain area like you're pretty much just doomed and there are all these sorts of structural factors working against you and while I think that young people are no dumber than any past generation they are no less motivated or intelligent but there is a cultural narrative that perhaps they don't have capacity to rise beyond their station in life and that's problematic. Keith, do you sense that entrepreneurial spirit is still as strong and rich as it always was? I do, but I fear that it's been given a real shake during COVID because I think during the COVID years, particularly where I am from Victoria, we, we had whole households and businesses and sectors that, that had to rely on the state to survive. And I think that's created a different relationship between the individual and the state. And it's made people more nervous to take risks, which needs to be there for, to have that entrepreneurial spirit. So I think we need to give it a kick again, because I definitely saw it there before COVID. It's there now, but it's just not quite the same. And it does worry me. Yeah, I, let's move on, because we need to finish this statement in a reasonable amount of time so you can get about your business, Keith. But the, the, going back to that idea of national sovereignty, we see so much. And since I think Menzies left office, we've seen it increasingly that supranational bodies, the UN or whoever, are becoming authorities in their own right and sovereign governments like ours are ceding some power to those organisations, particularly when we sign up to international treaties of one kind or another and then we're bound to do X, Y or Z. And I'm thinking about, began with the International Treaty on Human Rights. We More recently, we think of the climate change, the Paris Agreement, those agreements we sign up to and then more recently still COVID and the World Health Organization is attempting to give itself more authority in this space and by definition countries like ours less. Menzies of course resisted this very strongly. He could see the danger, he spoke against it. Keith, do you think that we've been too careless in that regard? I've been watching this sort of area for a while and I think potentially, I think the dial has been wound back compared to previous years. And I think the other advantage we have here in Australia is, again, our constitution, that various governments can sign up to treaties or other bodies, but until they're ratified in our own domestic law and have their that own legitimacy to them, they're not, they don't have much effect. And so really it's just a ceremony mostly for us until we have that domestic law consequence that flowed from it. So I'm not too worried about it. I'm also, as a middle power in the world, international bodies, as the theory goes, can be your friend if they're kept within check. We don't want a complete state of anarchy in the world, particularly when it comes to international security. These forums can serve our interests, particularly as we become a more multipolar world instead of the, the bipolar existence we've had for many decades through the Cold War. Yeah. In this special series of Watercooler podcasts, we're attempting to do something big, to define the values that unite Australian Liberals in the 21st century. The We Believe podcasts are a forum for free-ranging discussion that we hope will promote a wider conversation about the things we really believe in, the ties that bind us as a political movement, and the principles for which we can develop better policy. It's an ambitious project, and we couldn't do it without your help which is why we value the support of our growing group of paid subscribers. You can join them by signing up for just $10 a month. Just go to the Menzies Research Centre website for details or click on the link in the podcast notes. How do you feel about that, Freya, as somebody who mixes with a lot of people who want to be citizens of the world? Do you... <laughs> 
Yeah, I guess there's two angles you could take on it. The first one is a legal approach, and I think Keith is exactly right. We have a dualist system of the incorporation of international law, so we don't just sign a treaty and then it becomes Australian law. To be incorporated into domestic law, it actually has to be passed through legislation in Parliament, and I think that's a very good thing. And But I would agree that perhaps on the cultural side, there could be a sense that these sorts of international organisations are somehow these benevolent global powers that want to promote the interests of human rights and climate change and whatever. And I think that's probably a more insidious force than the legal implications. And that's probably what we have to be a bit conscious of with our young people, especially, and just saying to them, no, actually, you're Australian first and foremost. And we have something that's worth protecting and worth defending. And it probably will not be served just by blindly following whatever the UN says. What do you think, Nick? I think it's been an interesting conversation about to get the thoughts, neural channels moving on these issues. Because it's, as I say, you rightly said that I was, I'm very nervous about the idea of international citizenship. And yet I think at a nation-to-nation level, there is this idea of a community of nations. And we've... We, that we know we're part of that and in a sense we have to behave as a nation to our neighbours and other countries in the world as we expect people to behave to one another within our country i.e. Mm-hmm. treat them with respect and and enter into certain agreements the air traffic agreement for instance obviously a very sensible one we're very happy to operate on whatever rules the international community decides we don't want planes flying left and centre and possibly climate change if that's going to be the way we deal with that I guess the question is, how do we do that? We're still maintaining our right to make our own decisions over things like immigration. I know Keith, the Greens have got this idea. I want to pick your brains as some of the legal background. They often talk about international law. So I remember when we were, when we had problems with migrants coming here illegally by boat, and we would, we would detain them and put them in Nauru or whatever. The Greens used to say, you can't do that. It's against international law. Is there any such thing? It's a good question. I think the first half of any international law subject to university is addressing that very question. I think there's two limbs to law that matter. One is that they can be enforced, and that is usually through a police force and courts, and that doesn't exist. And then the other is that it has legitimacy, and ultimately our system of enforcing the law is anchored in the legitimacy of our democracy. It's our democracy that keeps the executive accountable. It's the executive that appoints the judges and they are then independent. So I think all of that, those ingredients of enforcement and legitimacy are missing. So I think international law really is international norms. And sort of it's a pool of good ideas that a nation state can draw upon. I think the exception would be the laws of interstate conflict. I I think because the consequences are so grave... And we, our very survival as a species on the planet depends upon it. I think we, we have somehow managed to say that through the UN Security Council that it's not effective, but in terms of stopping total war, maybe that has had some success that we can be proud of. Yeah, and I think as well to add on to that, you do have these just Kogan's norms. And so those are peremptory norms and you can't actually violate them. Look, people still do, but enclosed in those just Kogan norms are things like state torture, genocide. And those are are acts of the state that we would all say do not have a place in in our world and violate fundamental norms and you should not be able to partake in those activities. But beyond that, I think I would agree with Keith that the uh, the nature of international law is uh, quite debated. And oftentimes state don't, states don't fear, uh, there's no global police force, they just fear reputational damage before these international bodies and not much more. There's one part of this statement about sovereignty that I would I would cling to, if we cling to nothing else in this statement, I'd cling to this bit and maybe even put it up in lights. When we're talking about sovereignty, it talks about sovereignty exercised through parliaments, no, not governments, not cabinet, not the prime minister, exercised through parliaments, deriving their authority from the people by free and open elections. The people, in the end, are the ones Mm. that 
custodians of that sovereignty, aren't they? And I loved the design. One thing I used to love about the design of Parliament House that was spilt, spoilt partly by the security fences they had to put in because of ter- ter- terrorism threats was the fact that you can walk over the top of Parliament House on the grass. You can't now, but you used to be able to. But just a symbol mm. of that, Keith, that you sitting in there right now, where you're speaking to you in your office in Parliament, people should be able to walk all over the top of you because it's just <laughs> your, any authority you have in there comes from the people. That's right, isn't it? It is. And uh, I was recently, we do a lot of phone canvassing in, into my seat just as a way to see what matters to people and how we can help. And we were reviewing the opening line and the opening line says, after they've said who they're calling on behalf of, they say, we work for you. And it's a simple statement, but for those who make the calls and I make some of them myself, it stops people in their track and they think, yeah, it's true, you do. And that's the way it should be, that ultimately we are talking about the democratization of power. Power needs to reside in the people and then they grant it on a daily renewable contract that we have and it's ultimately exercised in and reviewed in elections but power is dissolved and we're a better nation when it is dissolved and i think that this is where the liberal party is very distinct from the labor party because we don't have the influence of unions who are these unelected bodies that pull massive strings behind the scenes and determine policy settings and who gets what positions in cabinet. And I think that's where the Liberal Party has a distinct advantage. And also, it's interesting that it's parliaments and not bureaucrats as well, because I think over COVID Mm. and in key areas of really significant public policy, whether it's education or health, you have these massive bureaucracies that make so many of the day-to-day decisions about how government operates. And partly it's the scale of the state that has to happen. You have to delegate authority. But it does raise interesting an interesting question around what really should be the role of the bureaucracy? Who are they ultimately answerable to? Because they're not elected. I've got very strong views on this, Keith. From the COVID episode, the COVID panic, It seems to me that as governments, state and federal, but particularly at state level, particularly egregiously at state level, I think, abandoned parliaments and abandoned even cabinets, abandoned party rooms and made decisions as cabals in cases in some states, like Victoria, it seemed to me they were edicts issued from from the great man himself, the Premier, and enacted by bureaucrats without parliament having any say in it. Now, that chilled me at the time, and I think as things turned out, we can see that there were many bad decisions made during COVID, large and small, by state governments, federal governments. But in every case, I think the chances of that mistake being made would have been less if it had been put up to parliamentary scrutiny. So if for no other reason, although it can be frustrating, as having been in that place, Keith, it's frustrating for a government to get its policy through, I think we have to respect that that generally having to go through Parliament, go through the Senate, it does help knock the rough edges off it and generally you end up with better or at least safer legislation than you would otherwise. So the parliamentary process is important for practical reasons. It is and I've only been here since May last year but I have seen how even though we're in opposition that the committee work the accountability and the fear of being held to account in the parliament with the open media reporting that comes with that has made for better bills and better legislation. And I, if we didn't have those processes, I, I think the, there would have been different legislation. And we saw that in COVID. I don't think there was a justification not to have parliamentary processes in those periods. Prayer? Yep, I agree. I definitely agree with that. And I think that we should be constantly reminding the public that bureaucrats do not call the shots and actually they too uh, sit below the parliament because it's the parliament that derives its authority from the people and they are the elected officials and not the bureaucracy. And I don't, I don't want to 
single out anybody for blame. In most cases, it seems to me, leaders, state and federal, were just trying to do the best Mm. they could under difficult circumstances, not knowing Mm. what this virus might bring and et cetera, et cetera. But, But we did, maybe if we'd have had this statement at the top of our minds, we might have not have extended emergency powers so extensively as we did. And I know both Greg Hunt and Scott Morrison on record are saying that they were surprised when they opened up the box of, of emergency powers that were available to them in a pandemic. They were surprised at how sweeping they were mm-hmm. and actually put in checks and balances themselves to make sure that they were kept in control. But perhaps one thing we could do now, if we really believe in this statement, is actually suggest that Parliament revisits those emergency powers in the light of what happened in COVID and see if we might just not revise them down a bit. Am I on my own on that one? No, I think that's right. Yeah, there needs to be a proper review. Freya, any final thoughts before we go on to the big money question? No, I think that's probably pretty comprehensive. I would say one thing we perhaps haven't touched on as much, but maybe could briefly, is the threats that we might start to encounter in relation to our national sovereignty. And the obvious source of one of those threats could be China to our north. And uh, yeah, I'd just be curious to hear briefly about what Keith's thoughts on that are and how much of a threat is China to our sovereignty? I think the uh, what we, when you think about what's a threat to our sovereignty, I always like to think what will last through the decades as a statement. This statement is if if Menzies had included particular nations or threats, it wouldn't have aged well because the nations that were posing a threat to us then are not the ones that are posing us now and the ones now won't be, you'd imagine, in decades to come. And I think that's the genius of this, we believe, statement, that it is so timeless because he, he, was, he knew not to single out particular threats at their time. So for me, the idea of, I think, totalitarian states, whatever form they're in, whether they're in dictatorships or communist states, I think they are threatened by democracies and are therefore a threat themselves to democracies. So I think because of the regime that that is in charge, that they are necessarily threatened by an alternative that is showing a different way that is accountable, that can lead to a prosperous free nation. And, and I think that's, again, that's what Menzies was getting at here, that as a confident nation that 